Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. This month, the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus is folding its tent after 146 years of bringing the greatest show on earth to cities and towns throughout America. To commemorate, we're doing a podcast about and reading a book written by the greatest showman on earth, Phineas T. Barnum of Bridgeport. P.T. Barnum not only made the circus what it was, he was the world's first entertainment mega mogul, America's second ever millionaire, and much more. His book, The Art of Money Getting, or Golden Rules for Making Money, is a gem of a self-help book, rich in humor, historical insight, and practical common sense for the woman or man out to grab life's golden rings. Like P.T. Barnum's Three Ring Circus, this is a three-episode story. In the first, we interview Kathy Marr, executive director of the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Connecticut, who makes clear why the Barnum story is much bigger than his circuses. Our interview was taped at the State Historic Preservation Offices in Hartford, amidst a construction boom taking place right outside our window. Listeners may note some sounds that aren't intended as special effects. After the our interview, I'll read the preface of Barnum's book, which should give you a good feel for the historic and present value of this exceptional work. In the two podcasts that follow, you'll learn Barnum's 20 surefire rules to help you make it to the top. And throughout, we'll intersperse the episodes with samples of real Barnum-era musical entertainment, as found in the cylinder recordings in the digital archives at the University of California, Santa Barbara. So, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to P.T. Barnum's The Art of Money Getting, freely given on Grading the Nutball. Listen, honey, listen to the bugle blow. Keep your eyes open and we'll see the show. Now see that back rider jump. See that camel's great big hump. The elephants are dancing to the circus tune. See the possum riding on the big black boom. Just hear them. Oh, hear them. Now hear the people yell. Sit down, you room. Sit down, you fool. We want to see that clown. On circus day. On circus day. Just see that music of his band. Oh, 
Hi, I'm happy to be sitting this morning with Kathy Marr. Kathy, tell us who you are and what you do. I am the executive director of the Barnum Museum down in Bridgeport. We're about to play for people a recording of his book, The Art of Money Getting. Mm, one of the best. Why was P.T. Barnum considered in the 19th century an authority on money getting? Well, first of all, Barnum really was like the second millionaire in the nation. Astor was the first. So people don't really know the complexity of Barnum's character. There are multiple, multiple facets that make up his extraordinary life. People automatically assume he's the circus impresario, and he was, but he was far more than that. So he was a lot more than a circus ringmaster. He was an entrepreneur. Being a, um, a circus giant is probably the least of what his major accomplishments and influences are on this country. For instance? Well, for instance, um, and, and very superficially, there would be no Madison Square Garden without P.T. Barnum. Seriously? Seriously. Uh, there would be no Metropolitan Opera House the way we know it today. Barnum impacted the attractions entertainment industry and really blazed the trail for who we are, what we enjoy, and celebrate today in our lives. This all comes from Barnum in the early 19th century. People in the history business think of Barnum as one of the fathers of the American Museum, right? Yes, yes. Where he really found his heart and soul, literally, he found his heart and soul at the American Museum in New York City. He opened it in 1842, New Year's Day, and he didn't invent it. This is one thing that's fascinating about Barnum. Remember that old BSF commercial, I didn't invent the toaster, we made it better. Okay, right. this is Barnum. So he purchases, in a brilliant mathematical way, an existing establishment called Scudder's American Museum. Renames it Barnum's American Museum. He introduced new and exciting attractions, demonstrations. It really is the first science center. You know, for the first time people could go and see modern ones you know, uh, inventions and wonders of the time. There was a perfumery, there was a wax shop, there was, it's the first aquarium, there were whale tanks in the basement, they were pumping water in from uh, the East River, hence really the start of aquatic sciences at That's that time. That's amazing. It's, it's extraordinary. He owned, fast forward, he owned um, what and today he, is the Boston Aquarium, yeah. And he was doing all these things to make money, right? He was Absolutely. He, was, he called it profitable philanthropy, and he truly believed in instructive entertainment, that there always had to be a nugget that you take away with you, whether it's learning, whether it's curiosity, whether it's inspiring you to look at the world differently. He understood the temper of people, what they wanted, and entertainments the way we understand them today really only existed for the wealthy, you know, and the educated at that time. Um, you know, any kind of theaters that existed so he in creates, New York. So he creates entertainment for the masses. He does. Family entertainment, because prior to that, it's primarily male-attended. There's drinking, there's smoking, there's bad behavior. Barnum would have none of that. He was a staunch temperance leader. Well, Connecticut just overturned his liquor laws. What was it, two years Ago? The yes. Sunday laws, right? For people who aren't in Connecticut, the Sunday laws prohibited any store in Connecticut other than restaurants from yeah. serving alcohol or selling alcohol on Sundays. Yep. Our yep. blue laws. So they finally were rescinded two years ago. Yeah. Just so, two years ago. Long effect. So here is this entrepreneur who's, you know, he's making a lot of money. 
why does he decide to write a book about it? So, you know, the book is really a culmination of his life experiences. He understood how to make money. So, he's done all these things, he's made a lot of money, why isn't he just out doing another project? So he actually is, So because he can't do one thing. I, he is the multitasker of all time. So he had his eyes on the creation of Bridgeport as a major metropolis. It was beautiful, it had the trains, it had the turnpike companies going through it. It had a wonderful community base. So he decides to industrialize and start bringing in companies that could really morph the city into this major industrial hub outside of New York City. In doing so, he ventures into a deal with the Jerome Clock Company, and he assumes all of their debt unknowingly massive debt. And it, what Barnum really tried to do was get back on his feet. It bankrupted him. It bankrupted him. So, so the acquisition of the Jerome Clock Company really bankrupted Barnum. He needed to pay off all the creditors by no fault of his own. So and he not only made money, he knew how to lose he, money. He, he could fail greatly. Yeah. <laughs> he could fail greatly. And it was a major blow. Now, it was a blow to certainly his finances, but it was a blow to his ego. I mean, just right. think about it. He is a brand by the 1850s. And people were coming out of the woodwork to try to help him, and he wouldn't take anything. And it wasn't until his really good friend, Tom Thumb, uh, who was also quite wealthy on his own at that point, uh, he said, come on, old friend, let's go back to England. Assume my management, let's do another tour. And Tom Thumb was the little person, Tom right? Thumb was right, his really first major attraction. So, you know, they joined forces again, and Barnum staged the entire European tour in England and created that sensation to really reestablish his money. And so he is in that, England, what, working off his debts or working yes. off this clock company's he's debts? He's working off the, exactly, precisely. So he's working off the clock company's debts. Um, but in that time, he mortgages the American Museum. He puts a lot of his assets actually into charity, his wife's name, just so he could stay liquid. And he manages to do it. You know, he doesn't abandon his dream of uh, creating utopia, uh, Bridgeport, the shining, you know, city. And he does go back to it. He does reestablish his money. But what happens, and he writes about this, it humanizes him. He, he sees that going through this trial in his life, this major, major loss, taught him compassion, taught him to really honor and respect his own authentic person and see that in others. And it's, it's a turning point in his life. Well, The Art of Getting Money is, in fact, a very human book. It's a tribute to the, that time. It's a tribute to that hard time. Understand what you are. And I think one of the interesting, and it holds up today, doesn't it? But it has been in continuous print yeah. since he did the first lecture, what, in 1858? He does the lectures, he starts doing the lectures, and of course they grow and expand through the course of, uh, of his life. He would do the art of money getting as well as his temperance talks uh, early on because he was his own celebrity, so people wanted to hear him. You know what I find amazing about this book? It's not, you know, as a book it's not that long, less than a hundred pages. Yeah. But the advice is as practical and useful yeah. today as any self-help book you could read about success and making money. It's truly, his ideas are, this word is overused, but they have this timeless quality. 
And of course, as a historian, the thing I most love about this book isn't the timeless advice, as good as that is. It's that along with this advice that is as modern as tomorrow, how's that for a cliche? Yes. <laughs> along with this absolutely timeless advice, you get examples that are these wonderful windows into how people lived in the 19th century. You just get glimpses into old farmhouses and into young people working and uh, men and women trying to put on airs and status. It's a fabulous glimpse of human nature. It, it really is. It really, And it's digestible, isn't it? When, it's, when you read it, it's totally digestible. When I became the director, because I got to the Barnum Museum in 1998, then in 2005 I became the director, and the first thing I did was read this book with a whole new way of reading this book. Because now you're the steward of because, the Barnum legacy, right? Right. So it wasn't just like, okay, this is part of the collection, it's part of the story, now this is part of my life. Right. So it was, it's been one of the greatest tools, and it has really helped us maneuver multiple natural disasters at the Barnum Museum. And in, and you I, know, it's funny, but I've got to say the same thing. Reading this book has really inspired me to... Yeah do things differently than I have and maybe accomplish more than I thought I could. Absolutely, and there's elegant simplicity to it. I mean, really, know your vocation. Don't try to be somebody you're not. Know who you are. And then go be it. And then go be it. And be it boldly. And right? be it boldly. Oh my God, this is great. <laughs> well, yes. I'll tell you what. I think we have set this book up really nicely for people, and I think it's time for us to get out of their way and let them listen to Barnum's story, The Art of Money Getting. Thank you, Walt. Thank you, Kathy. Preface In the United States, where we have more land than people, it's not at all difficult for persons in good health to make money. In this comparatively new field, there are so many avenues of success open, so many vocations which are not crowded, that any person of either sex who is willing, at least for the time being, to engage in any respectable occupation that offers may find lucrative employment. Those who really desire to attain an independence have only to set their minds upon it and adopt the proper means as they do in regard to any other object which they wish to accomplish, and the thing is easily done. But however easy it may be found to make money, I have no doubt many of my hearers will agree it is the most difficult thing in the world to keep it. The road to wealth is, as Dr. Franklin truly says, as plain as the road to the mill. It consists simply in expending less than we earn. That seems to be a very simple problem. Mr. Micawber, one of those happy creations of the genial Dickens, puts the case in a strong light when he says that to have an annual income of 20 pounds per annum and spend 20 pounds and 6 pence is to be the most miserable of men. Whereas, to have an income of only 20 pounds and spend but 19 pounds and sixpence is to be the happiest of mortals. Many of my readers may say, we understand this. This is economy, and we know economy is wealth. We know we can't eat our cake and keep it also. 
Yet I beg to say that perhaps more cases of failure arise from mistakes on this point than almost any other. The fact is, many people think they understand economy when they really do not. True economy is misapprehended, and people go through life without properly comprehending what that principle is. One says, I have an income of so much, and here is my neighbor who has the same. Yet every year he gets something ahead, and I fall short. Why is it? I know all about economy. He thinks he does, but he does not. There are men who think that economy consists in saving cheese pairings and candle ends, in cutting off two pence from the laundress bill, and doing all sorts of little, mean, dirty things. Economy is not meanness. They fancy they are so wonderfully economical in saving a halfpenny, where they ought to spend two pence, that they think they can afford to squander in other directions. A few years ago, before kerosene oil was discovered or thought of, one might stop overnight at almost any farmer's house in the agricultural districts and get a very good supper. But after supper, he might attempt to read in the sitting room and would find it impossible with the inefficient light of one candle. The hostess, seeing his dilemma, would say, It is rather difficult to read here evenings. The proverb says, you must have a ship at sea in order to be able to burn two candles at once. We never have an extra candle except on extra occasions. These extra occasions occur perhaps twice a year. In this way, the good woman saves five, six, or ten dollars in that time. But the information which might be derived from having the extra light would, of course, far outweigh a ton of candles. But the trouble does not end here. Feeling that she is so economical in tallow candles, she thinks she can afford to go frequently to the village and spend 20 or 30 dollars for ribbons and furbelows, many of which are not necessary. This false connote may frequently be seen in men of business, and in those instances it often runs to writing paper. You find good businessmen who save all the old envelopes and scraps and would not tear a new sheet of paper if they could avoid it for the world. This is all very well. They may in this way save five or ten dollars a year, but being so economical, only in notepaper, they think they can afford to waste time, to have expensive parties, and to drive their carriages. This is an illustration of Dr. Franklin's saving at the spigot and wasting at the bunghole. Pennywise and Pound Foolish Punch, in speaking of this one-idea class of people, says they are like the man who bought a penny herring for his family dinner and then hired a coach and four to take it home. I never knew a man to succeed by practicing this kind of economy. True economy consists in always making the income exceed the outgo. Wear the old clothes a little longer if necessary. Dispense with the new pair of gloves. Mend the old dress. Live on plainer food if need be so that under all circumstances, unless some unforeseen accident occurs, there will be a margin in favor of the income. A penny here and a dollar there, placed at interest, goes on accumulating, and in this way the desired result is attained. It requires some training, perhaps, to accomplish this economy, but when once used to it, you will find there is more satisfaction in rational saving than in irrational spending. Here is a recipe which I recommend. I have found it to work an excellent cure for extravagance, 
and especially for mistaken economy. When you find that you have no surplus at the end of the year and yet have a good income, I advise you to take a few sheets of paper and form them into a book and mark down every item of expenditure. Post it every day or week in two columns, one headed necessaries or even comforts, and the other headed luxuries. You will find that the latter column will be double, treble, and frequently ten times greater than the former. The real comforts of life cost but a small portion of what most of us earn. Dr. Franklin says, It is the eyes of others and not our own eyes which ruin us. If all the world were blind except myself, I should not care for fine clothes or furniture. It's the fear of what Mrs. Grundy may say that keeps the noses of many worthy families to the grindstone. In America, many persons like to repeat, We are all free and equal but it's a great mistake in more senses than one. That we are born free and equal is a glorious truth in one sense, yet we are not all born equally rich, and we never shall be. One may say, there's a man who has an income of $50,000 per annum, while I have but $1,000. I knew that fellow when he was poor like myself. Now he is rich and thinks he's better than I am. I'll show him that I'm as good as he is. I will go and buy a horse and buggy. No, I can't do that. But I will go and hire one and ride this afternoon on the same road that he does and thus prove to him that I am as good as he is. My friend, you need not take that trouble. You can easily prove that you are as good as he is. You have only to behave as well as he does but you cannot make anybody believe that you are rich as he is. Besides, if you put on these airs and waste your time and spend your money, your poor wife will be obliged to scrub her fingers off at home and buy her tea two ounces at a time and everything else in proportion in order that you may keep up appearances and, after all, deceive nobody. On the other hand, Mrs. Smith may say that her next-door neighbor married Johnson for his money, and everybody says so. She has a nice $1,000 camel's hair shawl, and Mrs. Smith will make Mr. Smith get her an imitation one, and she will sit in a pew right next to her neighbor in church in order to prove that she is her equal. My good woman, you will not get ahead in the world if your vanity and envy thus take the lead. In this country where we believe the majority ought to rule, we ignore that principle in regard to fashion and let a handful of people, calling themselves the aristocracy, run up a false standard of perfection, and in endeavoring to rise to that standard, we constantly keep ourselves poor, all the time digging away for the sake of outside appearances. How much wiser to be a law unto ourselves and say we will regulate our outgo by our income and lay up something for a rainy day. People ought to be as sensible on the subject of money getting as on any other subject. Like causes produce like effects. You cannot accumulate a fortune by taking the road that leads to poverty. It needs no profit to tell us that those who live fully up to their means without any thought of a reverse in this life can never attain a pecuniary independence. Men and women accustomed to gratify every woman caprice will find it hard at first 
to cut down their various unnecessary expenses and will feel it a great self-denial to live in a smaller house than they've been accustomed to, with less expensive furniture, less company, less costly clothing, fewer servants, a less number of balls, parties, theater goings, carriage ridings, pleasure excursions, cigar smokings, liquor drinkings, and other extravagances. But after all, if they will try the plan of laying by a nest egg, or in other words, a small sum of money at interest or judiciously invested in land, they will be surprised at the pleasure to be derived from constantly adding to their little pile, as well as from all the economical habits which are engendered by this course. The old suit of clothes and the old bonnet and dress will answer for another season. A cold bath and a brisk walk will prove more exhilarating than a ride in the finest coach. A social chat, an evening's reading in the family circle, or an hour's play of Hunt the Slipper and Blind Man's Bluff will be far more pleasant than a 50 or $500 party when the reflection on the difference in cost is indulged in by those who begin to know the pleasures of saving. Thousands of men are kept poor and tens of thousands are made so after they have acquired quite sufficient to support them well through life in consequence of laying their plans of living on too broad a platform. Some families expend $20,000 per annum, and some much more, and would scarcely know how to live on less, while others secure more solid enjoyment frequently on a twentieth part of that amount. Prosperity is a more severe ordeal than adversity, especially sudden prosperity. Easy come, easy go is an old and true proverb. A spirit of pride and vanity, when permitted to have full sway, is the undying cankerworm which gnaws the very vitals of a man's worldly possessions. Let them be small or great, hundreds or millions. Many persons, as they begin to prosper, immediately expand their ideas until in a short time their expenses swallow up their income and they become ruined in their ridiculous attempts to keep up appearances and make a sensation. I know a gentleman of fortune who says that when he first began to prosper, his wife would have a new and elegant sofa. That sofa, he says, cost me $30,000. When the sofa reached the house, it was found necessary to get chairs to match, then sideboards, carpets, and tables to correspond with them, and so on through the entire stock of furniture, when at last it was found that the house itself was quite too small and old-fashioned for the furniture, and a new one was built to correspond with the new purchases. Thus added my friend, summing up an outlay of $30,000 caused by that single sofa and saddling on me in the shape of servants, equipage, and the necessary expenses attendant upon keeping up a fine establishment, a yearly outlay of $11,000 and a tight pinch at that. Whereas 10 years ago, we lived with much more real comfort because with much less care on as many hundreds. The truth is, he continued, that sofa would have brought me to an inevitable bankruptcy had not a most unexampled title to prosperity kept me above it, and had I not checked the natural desire to cut it ash. The foundation of success in life is good health. That is the substratum fortune. It is also the basis of happiness. A person cannot accumulate a fortune very well when he is sick. He has no ambition, no incentive, 
no force. Of course, there are those who have bad health and cannot help it. You cannot expect that such persons can accumulate wealth, but there are a great many in poor health who need not be so. If, then, sound health is the foundation of success and happiness in life, how important is it that we should study the laws of health, which is but another expression for the laws of nature? The nearer we keep to the laws of nature, the nearer we are to good health. And yet, how many persons there are who pay no attention to natural laws, but absolutely transgress them, even against their own natural inclination? We ought to know that the sin of ignorance is never winked at in regard to the violation of nature's laws. Their infraction always brings the penalty. A child may thrust its finger into the flames without knowing it'll burn, and so suffers repentance even will not stop the smart. Many of our ancestors knew very little about the principle of ventilation. They did not know much about oxygen, whatever other gin they might have been acquainted with, and consequently they built their houses with little seven-by-nine-feet bedrooms, and those good old pious Puritans would lock themselves up in one of these cells, say their prayers, and go to bed. In the morning they would devoutly return thanks for the preservation of their lives during the night, and nobody had better reason to be thankful probably some big crack in the window or in the door let in a little fresh air and thus save them. Many persons knowingly violate the laws of nature against their better impulses for the sake of fashion. For instance, there is one thing that nothing living except a vile worm ever naturally loved, and that is tobacco. Yet how many persons there are who deliberately train an unnatural appetite and overcome this implanted aversion for tobacco? They have got hold of a poisonous, filthy weed, or rather, that takes a firm hold of them. Here are married men who run about spitting tobacco juice on the carpet and floors, and sometimes even upon their wives besides. They do not kick their wives out of doors like drunken men, but their wives, I have no doubt, often wish they were outside of the house. Another perilous feature is that this artificial appetite, like jealousy, grows by what it feeds on. When you love that which is unnatural, a stronger appetite is created for the hurtful thing than the natural desire for what is harmless. There is an old proverb which says that habit is second nature, but an artificial habit is stronger than nature. Take, for instance, an old tobacco chewer. His love for the quid is stronger than his love for any particular kind of food. He can give up roast beef easier than give up the weed. Young lads regret that they are not men, they would like to go to bed boys and wake up men, and to accomplish this, they copy the bad habits of their seniors. Little Tommy and Johnny see their fathers or uncles smoke a pipe, and they say, If I could only do that, I would be a man too. Uncle John has gone out and left his pipe of tobacco. Let us try it. They take a match and light it and then puff away. We will learn to smoke. Do you like it, Johnny? That lad dolefully replies, not very much. It tastes bitter. By and by he grows pale, but he persists, and he soon offers up a sacrifice on the altar of fashion. But the boys stick to it and persevere until at last they conquer their natural appetites and become the victims of acquired tastes. I speak by the book, for I have noticed its effects on myself, having gone so far as to smoke ten or fifteen cigars a day. 
although I have not used the weed during the last fourteen years, and never shall again. The more a man smokes, the more he craves smoking. The last cigar smoked simply excites the desire for another, and so on incessantly. Take the tobacco chewer. In the morning, when he gets up, he puts a quid in his mouth and keeps it there all day, never taking it out except to exchange it for a fresh one, or when he is going to eat. Oh, yes, at intervals during the day and evening, many a chewer takes out the quid and holds it in his hand long enough to take a drink, and then pop it back in again. This simply proves that the appetite for rum is even stronger than that for tobacco. When the tobacco chewer goes to your country seat, and you show him your grapery and fruit house, the beauties of your garden, when you offer him some fresh ripe fruit and say, My friend, I have got here the most delicious apples and pears and peaches and apricots. I have imported them from Spain, France, and Italy. Just see these luscious grapes. There is nothing more delicious nor more healthy than ripe fruit. So help yourself. I want to see you delight yourself with these things. He will roll the deer quid under his tongue and answer, No, I thank you. I've got tobacco in my mouth. His palate has become narcotized by the noxious weed, and he has lost in a great measure the delicate and enviable taste for fruits. This shows what expensive, useless, and injurious habits men will get into. I speak from experience. I have smoked until I trembled like an aspen leaf, and I had a palpitation of the heart, which I thought was heart disease, till I was almost killed with fright. When I consulted with my physician, he said, Break off tobacco using. I was not only injuring my health and spending a great deal of money, but I was setting a bad example. I obeyed his counsel. No young man in the world ever looked so beautiful as he thought he did behind a 15-cent cigar or a meerschaum. These remarks apply with tenfold force to the use of intoxicating drinks. To make money requires a clear brain. A man has got to see that two and two make four. He must lay all his plans with reflection and forethought and closely examine all the details and the ins and outs of business. As no man can succeed in business unless he has a brain to enable him to lay his plans and reason to guide him in their execution, so no matter how bountifully a man may be blessed with intelligence, if the brain is muddled and his judgment warped by intoxicating drinks, it's impossible for him to carry on business successfully. How many good opportunities have passed, never to return, while a man was sipping a social glass with his friend? How many foolish bargains have been made under the influence of the nervine, which temporarily makes its victim think he is rich? How many important chances have been put off until tomorrow, and then forever, because the wine cup has thrown the system into a state of lassitude, neutralizing the energy so essential to success in business? Verily, wine is a mocker. The use of intoxicating drinks as a beverage is as much an infatuation as is the smoking of opium by the Chinese, and the former is quite as destructive to the success of the businessman as the latter. It is an unmitigated evil, utterly indefensible in the light of philosophy, religion, or good sense. It is the parent of nearly every other evil in our country. 
In part two of The Art of Money Getting, P.T. Barnum dispenses with Victorian moralizing for the most part and lays out his first ten rules for succeeding in business and becoming wealthy. You'll be surprised how useful they are and might consider putting some or all of them into practice. Walk with P.T. Barnum down the road to riches coming up next in part two of The Art of Money Getting on Grading the Nutmeg. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Kathy Marr of the Barnum Museum and the UCSB Cylinder Audio Archive. Hear more great stories on Connecticut history whenever you're ready by subscribing to Grading the Nutmeg on iTunes or gradingthenutmeg.libsign.org. If you like what you hear, please write a review. Connecticut Explored Magazine presents great stories and wonderful images about Connecticut history in every issue. Purchase single issues or subscribe at ctexplored.org. This episode of Grading the Nutmeg was produced and voiced by Walter Woodward and is a co-production of the Office of the State Historian and Connecticut Explored.